This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. All right, so let's get to work tonight. In Revelation chapter 3, I want us to look at uh, some of these things. Uh, in my study, even today, I, I realized how everything is going to quickly change uh, as we approach chapter 4. And actually, as we start reading it, abruptly change. And uh, so I don't know how far we'll get tonight uh, with this, picking up at verse number 11, but let's read this and move uh, according to the Lord's will. The Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. I want to just recap a couple of things about this and uh, move on to verse number 12 here in a moment. So as I was mentioning last week when we got to this verse and we were about ready to close the study out, I referenced a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 52. And keeping that verse in mind, when it says, Behold, I come quickly, and Paul is referencing how quick that quickly is. He says, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, there was a time in my study of Bible prophecy over 30, 40 years ago, and I tried to get that in sync. And uh, one of my references led me to believe that this was talking about a twentieth of a second in the twinkling of an eye. And there's, there's so many components to this experience that we, we reference to the rapture. We talk about the rapture. And that's what Paul is talking about here, the rapture. And that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. But notice the latter part of that. He says, hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He didn't say that no man would take your salvation. <clears throat> salvation is not the component here. It's talking about rewards. Crowns are rewards. And so be, be sure you understand this, that this doesn't say hold fast to your salvation. You cannot, you cannot lose it once you have it. Now verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. The name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. That's an interesting passage. And this is talking about winning the, the victory in the Christian life. Him that overcometh. And this is another aspect. We talked about rewards and crowns. What the Lord Jesus is talking about here in verse number 12 is another aspect of our eternal reward. And this certainly and surely is for faithful service to the Lord. Overcomers those who have been faithful to the Lord 
will be, according to Jesus, will be like a pillar in the temple of God. That's very important. One of the many things that we will not have to worry about in heaven, and let me say this, is liberal temples. Or in other words, thank God, we'll not have to worry about liberal churches in heaven. Amen. This world is consumed by them in every corner of the earth today. And I'm so thankful that when the Lord Jesus, he singles this out, that I'm going to make you, if you overcome, if you're living on the victory side, when the rapture takes place, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple. Thank God we won't have to worry about false churches in heaven. Now look at the end of verse number 12. And I will write upon him my new name. When I, when I looked at that, I, I referenced Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11. And uh, we'll get that scripture to you pretty quick here. Revelation 19 and verse number 11. And it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called, look at this. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So the new name is coming one day. We sing that song often. There's a new name written down in glory. We know that. What's that in reference to? Somebody becoming born again into the family of God. But uh, here the word says that I will write upon him my new name. That's interesting. And here in Revelation 19, the Lord is referenced as being faithful and true. All right, now let's go to verse 13. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We find that phrase, that, that passage over and over again. And so how do we do this? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, how do we hear what the Spirit says to us today? We hear with our heart. That's how he speaks. He speaks to our heart. Verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, saith the Amen. All right. Now, again, here it says the faithful and true witness. We just read that in Revelation 19, verse 11. The beginning of the creation of God. So in verse number 14, we get into the seventh church of Asia and the seventh message is to the church of the Laodiceans. And by the way, the word Laodicean means the rights of the people. And certainly it is the Days that we're living in now where everybody on the street corners on a soapbox talking about their rights for this and rights for that. And certainly it's the, it's the movement, the days and the time of the Laodiceans. Now Jesus in this passage, he gives a final description of himself. He calls himself the amen. Do you know what the word amen means? It means so be it. 
And so he calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, or in other words, the origin of the creation of God. God delegated the creative work through the Lord Jesus. We know that Jesus had no beginning. He wasn't created. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been. This is the only place in the scripture where this word amen has a proper name. And it's written of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the word says this. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto us or unto the glory of God by us. All right, the Lord Jesus is the amen. He always has the last word. That's what that means. So be it. Now, I'm attaching verse number 15 and 16 together. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. Now, this is a probably a familiar passage uh, that we have heard a lot in sermons or teachings. Uh, and it might seem to be somewhat confusing. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, or I wish you were. One or the other is what the Lord is saying. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because in verse 16 that thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, he said, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now that's, that's an interesting passage here. But the Lord is making clear that a life that is in a halfway position, basically what the word is saying, it's a repulsive predicament for an individual to be in, to be in the middle of the road. Jesus is saying this now in verse number 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, you know, a person is saying, I got this, I got that, I've got my ducks in a row, I have all of this abundance, I, I, I don't need... In fact, I can remember one particular Sunday many years ago, um, there was a couple in the church and they were praying for a new house. And the wife said, Preacher, I want you to pray that we get this new house. We We really would be blessed with it, we really need it. And the husband spoke up right in the shadow of that statement and said, uh, the Lord doesn't have anything to do with that. And I work hard every day of the week. And so getting this house is not up to him, it's up to me. My strength, my hands, my mind, and you know how sad that is. Because every good gift, the word says, perfect gift cometh from above. And we need to give the praise to God. And it's, it's a sad thing when people do not recognize they might have all of the earth's worldly goods and they're not able to see 
and to discern that though they might have everything according to a man's standards, that without Jesus, uh, they can do nothing and they will have nothing and they're not able to see or discern the wretched state that they're in. Because the word says, And have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus is saying that these people were oblivious to their spiritual condition at the time. They were materially prosperous, but they were spiritually impoverished. And then in verse 18, he says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes slave that thou mayest see. There's no better counseling in existence than to do what the Lord says through the word. And I do a lot of counseling in my ministry these days. And I can testify that a lot, a lot of troubles in families, a lot of troubles in homes could be nipped in the bud almost immediately if we just did what the Lord said. He's never advised any of us to go in a desolate way, in a deserted way. He's always promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And so there's no better counseling in existence than to take the words of the Lord Jesus and appropriate them to our lives. Isaiah 9, 6 says this about the counseling of God. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And that's what he is. He is a wonderful counselor. And Jesus was counseling to these people to take of him spiritual virtues and principles and apply them to their lives. He was compelling them to strive for purity because he knew that there were some in the church who were not saved. The Lord is giving John this witness. And by the way, that's true everywhere. We can never assume, I can never assume that everybody that's sitting in these pews on Sunday and Wednesday knows the Lord. And none of us should ever take that for granted. You don't know. Don't take that for granted. And finally, the Lord urges these people here to open their eyes and to anoint their eyes that they could see these spiritual conditions that they were in, that they needed spiritual insight. And by the way, all of us do. In Luke chapter 24 and verse number 45, the Bible talks about, and this was on the road to Emmaus, by the way, that opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. I think when we pray for wisdom and the Bible says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I pray every morning for wisdom. God, fill me with wisdom. Give me wisdom. Help me to know what to do. In my ministry, the words that come out of my mouth affect a lot of people. And a lot of people depend on what I say. They they depend on what I think. I have to have wisdom of God. And I pray for that every day. 
that God would open my understanding, that he would impart to me those things that are necessary to help the people here in the church. In some cases, uh, people that are not even in the Buford Road community. Spiritual understanding of his word. He is saying that they needed to exchange their wealth, their pursuit of wealth for their spiritual understanding. All right, in verse number 19, the word says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, there are a couple of verses that I want to associate here with verse number 19. If you write in your Bible, I'm going to give you a couple of these familiar scriptures I reference from time to time, and this may be a good place for you to make a footnote here in the margin of your Bible. But if you do, perhaps you would write Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. Because I want to read this again, and then I'll read these verses for you. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6, the Lord says in the word, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. This is is probably one of the clearest places in Scripture where we can make definite notation in the line of the evidence of being a child of God. And that is if we have chastisement of our life. If a person can sin without conscience, without conviction, and without the Lord dealing in that, and a person is just skipping through life without God's hand of judgment on them, well, the scripture's clear. There's no argument here. And so the Lord says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And, and I, here's the thing. Any person, any person who can live in sin, open sin, and be happy in sin, and continue to sin without chastisement, listen carefully, has never been a son of God. Because the word confirms it here. If you do that, if you are a son of God, listen, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, doesn't mean you're never going to sin. But if you are saved, truly born again, the word of God, and let me just paraphrase that for you, God's going to whip the living daylights out of you. That's what that means. Now, there are many people that have made professions of faith, but never really has taken possession. Millions are like that. In fact, one of the clearest examples that I can give you in Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Look at this. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's crystal clear. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? 
And then will I profess unto them, look at this, this is a clear day. Jesus said, I never knew you. Not, I knew you and you got into trouble. I knew you before you got into sin. I knew you when this, that, and the other. He said, I never knew you. That's, that's important uh, to remember. All right, now moving on quickly here, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. An interesting observance here as we study this church of the Laodiceans is that as the Lord begins to speak this, Jesus is standing at the door. And let me make this as, as simple as I can. He is not on the inside of the assembly. The Word of God says he is standing at the door. And not only is he standing at the door, he's standing on the outside of the door and he's doing the knocking. This is important. But it's also a picture of his amazing grace. And I want you to follow along with me here. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. This is representative of he's standing in front of all of our lives. The word is going forth, whether it's being taught, sung, preached, counseled, whatever it is. The word is going forth. The Lord's standing at the door. He's knocking. The Spirit's moving with conviction. And the, the point is this. He gives the invitation to everybody. And he's, he's not forcing his way in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And the point being is this. In this passage of Scripture, it's clear. He's not forcing his way into anybody's life. And he will never force his way into any aspect of our lives. That's the beauty of grace. It's the beauty of whosoever will may come. Now, he, he knocks and he beckons and he calls, but he never forces and so we are all granted the freedom of exercising a free will. In fact, I want you to see this passage in Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will. Do you see that? Let him take the water of life freely. And so the Lord, listen, the Spirit beckons. God's given us the opportunity. The Lord Jesus stands at the door and knock. And he said, if you're thirsty, he said, come unto me. And whosoever will, you can have this abundant life, but you have to take it freely. I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not going to force myself into your life, into your business. But if you want me, I'm here. But it has to be your initiative. You can take it or you can say no. The church door of the Laodicean assembly had basically closed its door in the face of Jesus. And I want you to think about this because as it was in the days of Noah, only eight people in the known world at that time were saved. In the days of Lot, 
only three were saved. And so Jesus asked a very serious question in Luke chapter 18 and verse number 8. He says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, look at this. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Now you think about it, only eight people on the ark, only three people within Lot's reach. And if you stop and do the math on that, if Lot had won his immediate family, just his immediate family, do you remember what God said? If you find 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. If Lot had a one through the power of his own influence, his own family. And here's the heartbreaking truth about that. When he pitched his tent toward Sodom, when he didn't move in it right away, but he pitched his tent toward Sodom, you think about this, eventually he started to move in. And when he moved in, he lost his influence, his ability to lead his family in the paths of God. And as a result of that, God destroyed the whole city that could have been saved with just his family. And so we're living, I believe, in the days of lukewarmness in this Laodicean age, the one that Jesus is talking about that he would spew out of his mouth. And I thought about this question. You think about it too. Because he asked, he said, well, I find faith on the earth. We're living in such a time. Church really doesn't mean anything to a lot of people anymore. What it used to mean. Uh, living out their faith doesn't have the same gravity that it had at some point in life. People today are not concerned about their spiritual life as they have perhaps been at one time. People are so busy, they've got all this stuff to do, uh, they, they would just rather watch it on the video. You know what? It, it, let me tell you this. This is, this is, uh, a very realistic observation, not illustration, observation. When we were dealing with COVID and we had to deal with, uh, the liberal governor that we had to deal with back in those days and he had all of these mandates and you, you lived through them just as much as I did and, uh, there, w there were days we had to do the service from my house. There were days that we had to do the service when there was just 10 people in this church, nobody in the pews. We could only have a certain amount of people working the soundboard. We had David up here leading the sing to nobody. Somebody would come sing a song. I get up here and preach my heart out with nobody in this church but the sound people. And that's all there was. But we were, we were faithfully doing all we could do, all what we were allowed to do. And, and the amazing thing is this. At one point, there were a couple of hundred people watching the service at 1045. That's to God be the glory. To God be the glory. And let me tell you, at, you know, I recognize that, um, most everybody in here doesn't have the gift of public speaking. I understand that. But even if you did, and you had to stand up here with nobody in the building and preach like every pew was filled, it would be a challenge. 
It, I, to be honest with you, at my age and about a thousands of sermons I've ever preached, when I sit in that chair on Sunday morning, that person singing that last song here, and I'm making my way from that chair to this pulpit, it's, it's a fearful thing. I look forward to preaching the Word of God, but it's a sacred moment here. I'm standing before a holy God. I have to preach His Word. That, that, that consumes me. But here's what I recognize. It's not an illustration. It's an observation. That back in those days when we had to do this, 1045, there were a couple of hundred people watching the program. To God be the glory. But then what started happening when uh, the liberalness started to be more generous and we could go from 10 to 25 and 50, we took it up in these sickening increments and we had to do all this stuff. And I'm not saying not to be safe and to be thankful and thinking and wise. I'm, you, you get it and I get it. But this is what happened. Eventually, what people started to do was not tune in at 10.45. They would tune in at maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 6 o'clock the night. Now, that's not bad. Okay, it's there, recorded, watch it. But what people then started to do was not watch it at all. So it went from a place of, it reminds me of when 9-11 occurred and a couple of days after the horrific experience of that. We opened up the church to the community. Come and pray whenever you want to, all day long, all day long. People were coming and going. And then we had that big special 9-11 service, and this place was filled with firefighters and policemen and ambulance workers and paramedics. And, I mean, from wall to wall, we had this big service, and it was God bless America, and everything was patriotic, and it was wonderful and real and heart-meaning. And what I noticed was that for three months after that, the church was pretty much full. But then, like always, things started getting into the spirit of complacency and apathy, and it dwindled down to where some people just forgot about it. And so here's the thing. Jesus said, when I come, will there be a faith on the earth? Shall he find faith on the earth, if we're not careful, we could easily get complacent in our faith. We have to be willing to persevere in these dark, difficult days that we live in. And so this is the question that I jotted down. i got to close with this. Thinking about everything I just said and the observations, I wonder if Jesus would come on if he came on Sunday morning, this, now this is hypothetical, but if he would come on Sunday morning between 10.45 and noon, think about that, our Sunday morning worship. But if he were to come, if the rapture were to take place on a Sunday morning at 10.45, somewhere between there and noon, I wonder how this church would be affected. How would it be affected? Now, don't I get this. You can be on a boat, you can be in a car, you can be on a train, you can be on a missions trip, you can be Timbuktu. When the rapture takes place, if your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're gone. I get that. But I wonder 
How many people would be sitting in these pews if the rapture took place on a Sunday morning, 1045 to 12 o'clock? I wonder how that would affect this congregation, this group. You say, well, preacher, I don't really get my thinking down deep like that, but, but try that on for a little bit. I don't have time to get to verse 21 tonight. We're five minutes over and I got these, I hear something banging over here already. I don't know. I think that's a child hanging out the window. We need to go, go run it down some kind of way. But uh, anyway, here's what I want you to know about this because we're getting ready to go into verse 21 and 22. When we round out this, and I will reemphasize this next Wednesday night perhaps, that we have been talking about uh Things past, present, but when we get into chapter 4, we're talking about this is a prophetic mode that really takes place from chapter 4 to chapter 17. Everything changes at this point. And uh, the prophecy of Revelation really begins at this point because we're talking about the opening of the seven sealed books. All right, so uh, there's a lot of things happening here in the future and hereafter. So with that, we will say we'll pick up these last two verses next Wednesday night and get into chapter four. You will you will really uh, be interested in the things yet to come. So hope to see you next Wednesday as well. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.